Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Ancient Poetry for Modern Politics. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 9th, 2017. This week in America, we'll celebrate the birth of our country 241 years ago on our 4th of July Independence Day. I'm always astonished to remember how very young our political experiment is compared to the arc of world history and to any other major country. On July 2nd, 1776, the Second Continental Congress of the 13 American colonies approved a resolution to declare independence from Great Britain. Henceforth, they would be a sovereign nation of 13 United States. Two days later, on July 4, the Congress approved the Declaration of Independence that explained that vote. America's national holiday always makes me feel the ambiguous relationship between the sacred eternal and the secular temporal, between my pledges of allegiance to the church and to the state and between the different visions of the city of God and the city of man. Our global research, A Journey with Jesus, continually reminds me that being Christian and being American are two different things. For our budget year that just ended on June 30th, Journey with Jesus served readers in 202 countries. And in 160 of those countries, we had five or more readers. Of course, it's good and natural to love your own country. I experienced this pull of patriotism when my family lived in Moscow from 1991 to 1995. We enjoyed so much about living in that great city, founded in the year 1147. But I also missed many things about America. Truly, there's no place like home. The problem with patriotism is that it can lead to nationalism. And nationalism, as C.S. Lewis once observed, believes that my nation is markedly superior to all others. Lewis describes how he once encountered a pastor who espoused such noxious nationalism. He asked him, doesn't every nation think of itself as the best? The clergyman responded in all seriousness, yes, but in England it's true. And so Lewis concludes, to be sure, this conviction had not made my friend, God rest his soul, a villain, only an extremely lovable old ass. It can, however, produce asses that kick and bite. On the lunatic fringe, it may shade off into that popular racialism which Christianity and science equally forbid. For the nation Israel that was founded as a theocracy, the direct rule by God alone, the reading from Zechariah this week reinforces a global rather than a parochial perspective. His political poetry speaks to us today, 2,500 years after he wrote. First, a little history. About 50 years after Babylon conquered Israel and deported them in 586 BC, 
the military balance of power shifted. On October 13th, 539 BC, Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered the Babylonian king in the Battle of Opus on the Tigris River, near modern Baghdad. As a tolerant and enlightened ruler, Cyrus issued an edict in 538 BC that permitted the subjugated Jews to return to their devastated homeland, and thus began Israel's post-exilic period. Repatriation to Israel was a brave choice, and not all the Jews returned. Economically speaking, they were better off in pagan Babylon than in holy Jerusalem, for the capital city had been ransacked and was in shambles. When Israel's present reality was bleak, the prophets envisioned a better future. And what is human hope if not the expectation of a future? And that's what Zechariah did for the repatriated Jews who were living in war-torn Jerusalem. Listen to his poetry from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. When you read this poetry carefully, and imagine yourself back in the time and place of a repatriated Jew trying to eke out a subsistence living in his devastated country, you see how Zechariah subverts our normal expectations. It's not what most Jews would have wanted to hear. A king will rescue them, yes, but why these words about righteousness and salvation instead of revenge and retribution? Defeated nations demand retribution. A king riding a colt? Such political parody must have struck Zechariah's original readers as crazy. Thank God for the promises of peace that all the enemy's military hardware will be removed from the capital city streets, chariots, war horses, battle bows. But peace to the enemy? Peace to all nations? Peace from sea to sea, in peace to the ends of the earth? Why such universal blessing when national survival was at stake? Zechariah envisioned a future far different than the one the Jews back then understandably sought, given their humiliating, humiliating circumstances, and certainly compared to the canons of conventional political wisdom. The future that his poetry envisioned is characterized by national humility, not political hubris. It imagines a king who rides a young donkey rather than a regal, regal stallion as emblematic and not oxymoronic. The future kingdom is also peaceable, not provocational. God's kingdom is one of peace and not war. Zechariah writes, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem 
and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. And so we should abhor war, not glorify it. God's coming kingdom is also universal, extending to the ends of the earth, rather than ethnocentric or nationalistic. In Zechariah's political calculus, God's kingdom extended far beyond the boundaries of what we normally think of as a geopolitical state. No nation is exceptional before God, and no nation is excluded. He writes, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. According to our Christian story, God created the entire cosmos. In Genesis, he promised to bless all the families of the earth. In Revelation, he gathers people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And in a clever play on words, in Ephesians, Paul says that God is the patera of every patria, the father of every family. He isn't the God of ancient Jews alone, or the God only of contemporary Americans. God is the Father, says Paul, of every family in heaven and on earth. Which is why Paul also says in Romans 8 that God will redeem the whole creation. For Christians who believe that God loves all people and nations without exception or favoritism, and who wish every nation peace rather than violence. The anniversary of the American Revolution invites us to the deeper reflections beyond patriotic rhetoric. Zechariah's peace poetry challenges us to imitate his God and to love all the world like he does. For books this week, I review a title by Motion Hamid, Exit West, a novel, New York Riverhead, 2017. This novel is 231 pages long. In this love story about the two migrants, Nadia and Saeed, Motion Hamid captures the zeitgeist of our contemporary world where over 60 million people have been displaced from their homes. Indeed, at the end of the book, the couple observes that sometimes it seems like, quote, the whole planet is on the move, end quote. The story begins in an unnamed city swollen by refugees, but still mostly at peace, or at least not yet openly at war. But that fragile equilibrium doesn't hold as the government battles radical militants. When things deteriorate to truck bombs, beheadings, public executions, food shortages, and little gas, water, or electricity, Nadia and Saeed flee. Their flight is made possible through a series of magic doors. Which doors have been increasingly rumored in their city? and which Hamid introduces early on in his narrative. He writes, It was said in those days that passing through one of these doors and escaping the death trap of their city was both like dying and like being born. But as the story unfolds, and as we know from our daily newspapers, 
new life in a new country is fraught with all sorts of new problems for refugees like them. Nadia and Saeed are very different people. She was always clad from the tips of her toes to the bottom of her jugular notch in a flowing black robe. But that dress was all about subterfuge rather than sanctity, for Nadia is decidedly irreverent. She never prays, she uses vulgar languages, smokes dope, and even lives by herself. Saeed, on the other hand, prays a great deal, and his prayers become an increasingly important theme in their story. In the end, Nadia and Saeed found themselves changed in each other's eyes in their new place. The novelist Moshin Hamid, born in 1971, is a British Pakistani whose previous three novels were all bestsellers that earned dozens of awards and have been translated into 35 languages. A graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law School, he is himself a wandering migrant who splits his time living in Lahore, New York, London, and Mediterranean countries, including Italy and Greece. Once again, the title, Exit West, a novel. For movies this week, I review Seed, the Untold Story, from 2016. Seeds. Since the dawn of humanity, they have been the gift of life and food itself. But in this one-hour film, we learn about the various dangers to and extinctions of seed diversity. We used to have 544 varieties of cabbage, but now only 28. 158 of cauliflower, but now only 8. Beets, corn, celery, radishes, watermelon, they all have similar statistics. The big petrochemical giants like Monsanto and Bayer come in for heavy criticisms in this field for their seed dictatorship that creates dependence, toxicity, and GMOs. They have patented and now own life itself. Over 90% of the foods that we grow depend on these corporate-owned seeds. Although, I might add, it's never mentioned in the film that we could never feed a world of 9 billion people without GMOs. Then there's drought and climate change. Of particular interest are the seed banks, like in Tucson, and, most notably, the global seed vault in Svalbard, Norway, with almost a million seed samples. The film draws upon the self-described seed hippie Will Bonsall, seed collectors who have traveled to over a hundred countries, molecular biologists, environmental lawyers, indigenous and organic farmers, and nameplates like Jane Goodall and Vandana Shiva. I watched this award-winning documentary on the PBS website. Once again, the title, Seed, The Untold Story. And finally this week, we offer a remarkably powerful poem called Benediction. It's by Nicholas Samaras. For what we are given, 
for being mindful of what we are given, for those who grieve and those who celebrate, for those who remain grateful in the face of everything, for the assembly of words that links us together, for individual speech that becomes speech shared, for the transformations a written page may affect in us, for those who pay attention, for the teachers who gave us the chrysalis of language, for the comrades of the heart who left us signposts, for the parent who gave us the one ethic of discipline, for ourselves who may take discipline to heart and not resent it, for the second chance that is the writing down, for those who know that half of poetry is silence, for the language of breath and the breath that is prayer, for those who wake to light and know the depths of sacrament, for this common meal and us who bow our heads and partake, for those who remember that so be it is also written, amen. This poem is simply called Benediction. You can find it on our website in our poetry archive, Nicholas Samaras. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 9th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.